Morning. Happy almost New Year. You guys ready for 2024? I heard no over here. Uh, awesome. Well, I'm really glad to see you here this morning and grateful to open the word as always with you. I'm going to be in two places today, um, Psalm 130 and then uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be in both. Uh, so you flip to Psalm 131st. I was talking with somebody right before I got up here. And uh, he said, well, you, you preached about new beginnings. And I thought, no. But then I thought, yeah, pretty much. Uh, this is your, uh, um, not your basic, let's move into the new year kind of sermon. Uh, but that is what we're talking about. It's this idea. It's hope for 2024. Hope for 2024. Uh, what is it? What is it not biblically? And then why can we have it? Why can we move into 2024 with a lot of hope? And why, as we just prayed, why can we move into 2024 uh, without fear as believers, as followers, and as children of the Lord? Why can we do that? Uh, that's kind of where we're going today. Is that cool? Hope you're all with me. Um, grateful for uh, this last week and focusing on uh, the personhood and the incarnation of Jesus, and we're going to camp out there a lot today as well. So uh, grateful you're here. If you're ready to go, say, let's go. Perfect. So uh, about a year ago is when I started thinking about this idea of hope uh, intently, and the teenagers will tell, tell you this, um, I wanted to develop like a theology of hope. That is richer and deeper than your general idea of what hope is in the world, which I think is this. The, the world's definition, if you put it in one word of hope, is the word optimism. Everybody say optimism. Optimism, uh, optimism is this. It is simply a desire for a future that is better than the present. I want things. I hope things will get better, whatever better means. This is optimism in the world. And uh, you, you operate like, like this. I put an equation on the screen. Sorry to put you in math class. But uh, optimism looks like this. I need X, so I'm hoping for Y. Or I'm hoping that Y will happen. Uh, so it looks like this. I, uh, I have this broken relationship. But I'm hoping maybe time will heal those wounds. Or I'm struggling uh, financially, so I'm hoping this new job or this raise or this promotion will get us closer to where we need to be. I need X, so I'm hoping for Y to happen. Y'all tracking with me so far? Uh, so this is what optimism looks like. It's living in this equation. All of us live in this equation all the time. I myself do as well. I'm a huge overthinker. Anybody else with me on this? If you're trying to decide if you're an overthinker or not, <laughs> welcome to the club. Uh, we overthink things, we rehearse things, or we play out every avenue, every possibility of what could or what might happen, and we live inside uh, of this equation. And when we do this, when we live inside this equation, X is totally dependent on Y, meaning this, our joy or our happiness, our contentment, our equilibrium is totally dependent on something as fragile as our circumstances, as fragile as our current circumstances, which can change like that, right? And when our everything, when our contentment, our joy, our happiness is dependent on something that fragile, this is what it does to us. This is what it does to me. It's probably what it does to you. It can destroy our satisfaction 
in life. Destroys it. And then it increases, heightens, raises our worries and then our anxieties, which I really don't think we need more of right now. This is what happens when we live inside this equation of, man, I I just kind of hope things get better when our entire hope is based on circumstances. Things that are totally out of our control. Destroys our satisfaction. So uh, I think you're with me when I say we need something better than that. We need something way better. Better hope. Something that we can actually hold on to. Something we can actually grab onto and even move forward with rather than just sit in our hands and say, I hope, I hope, hope things get better. We need something way better. So I want to do uh, two ideas, two biblical words for hope. And they are Hebrew words. So we're going to say them together just so we're on the same page. First word is kavah. Everybody say kavah. If you want to be really special and really smart, you can put a little throat in it. You know, uh, you don't have to do that. We won't do that together. Uh, teenagers are going crazy. Sorry. Uh, kavah, this is the first word. A biblical word for hope. But it actually means weight. It means hope and it also means weight. And then the second word is yakal. I'm putting on the screen. Yakal. Say that one. Yakal. Okay, so kavah and yakal. These are two Old Testament ideas for hope. They come up all over the place. If you flip to Psalm 130, uh, that's where we're going to be. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read Psalm 130, verses 5, 6, and 7. And when the words for uh, kavah and yakal come up, I'm going to say the Hebrew word. But you're going to read the English word. So try to track along with me, okay? Try to follow along if you can. Everybody ready? This is Psalm 130, verse 5. I kavah for the Lord, my soul kavah. And in his word, I yakal. My soul kavah for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, yakal in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Kavah and yakal. So, Let's talk about kavah for a second. This word kavah, I want you to think about the word or or, or a rope or think about a cord. When you pull a rope, when you pull a rope tight or when you wrap it around something, you pull it tight, what happens? You create tension. What the word kavah is going for is showing us that um, when you add strain or when you pull on something, somebody, uh, it creates tension and it's waiting for release. This is what Kava is going after. It is a tense, it's a very active, it's a very um, anticipatory waiting that's just waiting for release, waiting for something to end or waiting for something to come that is almost freeing. This is the word Kava. The word Yakal is different. Again, they both mean hope and they both mean wait. They, could, they both mean uh, hope and wait and wait and hope. Y'all with me so far? So yakal is meaning the same thing, but it's coming from a very different direction. Yakal is not so much of a um, tension, pooling, tiding. It's actually expectation. It's patient. It's lying in wait. And a really, real key word for yakal is the word trust. Um, can we say trust together? Trust. And call wants us to have a very patient trust, a very patient trust. Imagine sitting in a train station waiting for the train to come. It's not there yet, but you know it is. 
right? This is your call. We sit, lying in wait, and we trust. But here's what we want to do. I want us to see something. These two words, kava and yakal, hope and wait. Look down at Psalm 130, the three verses we just read. What are these two, um, these two words? What are they aimed at? What are they directed towards? In other words, what are they waiting for? What are they hoping in? Somebody tell me. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, right? Which means Yahweh, which means this is the covenant, the, the covenant name for God of his faithfulness that he delivers on his promises always. They kava in the Lord, they yakal in the Lord, which means they wait on the Lord and they hope in the Lord. Here's what I want you to see. The Old Testament idea of hope. And you can see this all over the Psalms and all over the New Testament. The, these Jewish, the original Jewish audience would have this kind of understanding of hope, that it is not circumstantial. It is not based on what's going on around me. It's not based on what I can accomplish in my own ability or what I can do for myself. Biblical hope is not circumstantial. Biblical hope is actually very, very personal. It's very personal. In the literal person of the Lord. That is what our hope is attached to. That is what our hope is tethered to. And you can get a lot out of this capital L-O-R-D. There's a lot of history in that word. That this is Yahweh. This is the God who delivered us from slavery. This is the God who delivered us um, repeatedly over and over and over again. The covenant God who fulfills and keeps his promises to us. So biblical hope is very, very Personal. It's an active and anticipating waiting for the Lord, paired with and supported by a very patient trust in Him. Active waiting and patient trust. I want to lock that in for us. Old Testament idea of hope. It is active waiting paired with patient trusting in the Lord, that He will deliver on His promises and do what He has said that He will do always. So we turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Moving a little fast. First Peter chapter 1. We just went through First Peter uh, a couple, few months ago in the student ministry. And um, as I was preaching through it, was reminded, this is not a happy book. <laughs> there are some books in the New Testament that are like James, very practical wisdom, or Philippians, which is joy. Everything's great. Y'all are killing it. And then you get First Peter, and it's just suffer, pain, it's hard, because it's written to uh, Christians who are literally actively being persecuted. It's written to uh, who, like, people who are being um, Christians who, because of claiming the name of Jesus, are being lit on fire on the side of the road as candles and as threats to Jewish people. Like, you don't want to have anything to do with that Jesus that they follow. Don't do that. So this is written to Christians who are very, very much under um, heavy, heavy persecution. And he, he, he's kind, Peter is kind, because he, he kind of softens the blow a little bit with these first few verses. So we're going to start reading in chapter, or verse 3. 1 Peter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a what kind of hope? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be re- revealed in the last time. 
Okay, so again, what kind of hope do we have? We have a living hope. Well, we know what hope is because we know our Old Testament. So hope is what? It's for, it's for this audience and for us, hope is a active waiting paired with a patient trust in the Lord. This is what we know about hope, active waiting paired with a patient trust. But we don't just get, hey, it's, it's a new hope that you have, or it's a different kind of hope that you have. It's a living hope. Why is he called a living hope? Easy, because Jesus is the living Savior. Jesus is still here. Jesus is active. Jesus is working, and even his Holy Spirit is, is flowing. So uh, we have a living Savior, and therefore we have this living hope because we can know uh, Jesus. We can know him. So Jesus has caused us to be born again. I love that. He has caused us to be born again to a living, living hope. And because Jesus lives, we can have this kind of hope. So the question I want to ask is, what can we have? What do we have apart from Jesus? We just talked about Christmas, just experiences birth. And now it's like, in, in my brain, once Advent is over, it's like we're looking to Easter, right? We're looking to Easter. And Jesus' ministry is active. What is he doing in my heart? Uh, what, what, what did he remind me of in the Advent season? The, the, the gift of him. Uh, so as we look toward Easter, this question is, is carrying me right now is, what do I have without Jesus? Really, what do I have without him? And the song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He Lives, All Fear Is Gone. Y'all know this one? Because he lives, and I know he holds the future, and life is worth the living. Why? Just because he lives. Because Jesus lives, this changes everything about how we operate. Every time we end a service, Jesus reigns over everything, right? This Jesus is active, and Jesus' life, his living, changes everything about how we can have hope and how we can um, look towards the future. So, to put it in a sentence for you, for the Christian to look forwards in hope, to look forwards to 2024, whatever you have coming, whatever we have coming as a country in November, to look forwards in hope, this is so good, to look forwards in hope, you only need to look backwards to the reality of an empty tomb and a living Savior. Which means you don't have to look for your own um, ability. You don't have to look at your own accomplishes, accomplishments. You don't have to look at um, how, how well can you do for yourself. These are circumstances that are largely out of our control. And we need to put our faith in something way stronger than that. We need a way better hope. And there's really good news for you. That you can look backwards to the reality of the cross and the empty tomb and a risen, very much alive Savior. That's the kind of hope you can grab onto, not only during the Christmas season. The Christmas story does not end uh, tomorrow on January 1st. Very much keeps going, very much keeps pressing. And that is the kind of hope that you and I can uh, grab onto, and absolutely it changes everything. So let's look back with me at verse 3, just to sum it up. Jesus, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, you can look backwards. What are we looking towards? We're not looking towards us. We're not looking towards our family. We're looking towards what Jesus did, his resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is three things, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. 
can't be taken away, can't be touched. And it is kept in heaven for you. Verse 5, who by God's power, that's us, are being guarded through faith. That's important. Through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So this kind of hope, this kind of living hope, uh, is, is, it works like this. It allows God to be the one that changes us. It allows God's work, it allows the Holy Spirit to be the one that alters and even sometimes chisels at us. The word hope, it, it, it can bring along a lot of, um, uh, I don't know, the word happiness, even though happiness is just an emotion. Uh, it can be, you know, it's, we think, oh man, things are going to get better. We think things are going to work out. But what if our hope was for an end product after a refining process? He's going to get to that here in just a second. But a Christian has this untouchable, eternal, personal hope that never changes. It's undefiled, right? Unfading. It's not going to change. What is going to happen? Well, it's going to change us. It has to change us. So look at verse 6. We can ask the question, How does this living hope actually change me? That's a question I run into a whole lot uh, with the teenagers and with myself. Like, how does this stuff, there's a lot of um, concepts in the New Testament that can be kind of up here, right? How does it actively trickle down and um, change me? Verse 6 answers the question right here. First words, in this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So how does living hope change you? It causes you, this is difficult, you guys, it causes you to choose a posture of joy in trials. How hard is that? That's tough, isn't it? Choosing a posture of joy, being a person that rejoices when things are really, really, actually not working out for you. And we're supposed to rejoice in this. So obviously, happiness does not equal joy, does it? If you look through the New Testament, you, you see that uh, repeatedly we're, we're commanded to be joyful people. We're commanded to be people who rejoice in the Lord. We're never commanded to be happy. Because happiness is an emotion. You can't command happiness. But why is it that we repeatedly we are commanded to be a joyful people? There's got to be something bigger going on, right? Joy, joyful, being joy, being a rejoicing person is not an emotion. It is a posture. It is an attitude. It is a, a mindset or even a worldview of looking toward, looking forwards and hope. So we choose joy in an active trial. And then I want you to see, why is he talking about gold down there? You see where it says, says that in verse 7? Why does he bring up gold? More precious than gold that perishes. Uh, when it is tested by fire. Well, uh, the original audience would know that the process of refining gold was this. You, you might, you've probably heard this before, but you, you put it in a pot, you melt it down, and all the impurities float to the top. Then you, let it, you, you swipe those impurities away, let it cool, and then you burn it down again, um, swipe the impurities away, 
You do this process over and over again. Let, let the impurities be separated from what is pure and what is not pure. And then you get rid of the impurities. That's the process. So you do this over and over and over again. And you let the fire do the work of separating. So what is Peter saying when he says, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire? He is saying to us that when you choose joy... In trials, it means, it means that you sit in that trial. It means that you stay. It means you stay still and you allow that pressure, you allow the heat, you allow the difficulty to actually separate and reveal to us how this is how the process works. It reveals to us what are the things that are pure in my life, but then it also shows us what are the things that need to go. What needs to be removed from my life? And it is only, somehow this works, God wired us this way, it is only when we actually sit in the trial, rather than stiff-arming it, rather than ignoring it or avoiding it, but when we actually sit in it, and we have to come face-to-face with the things about you that really disgust you. And it is then that we are revealed and we are shown, um, these have been my idols, or these are the things that have bound me. Uh, the, this is the sin that I've been really wrestling with or, or um, ignoring in my life. And it's time to reckon with it. It's time to do the work. So Peter is saying us, the, to us that we've got to sit in that trial. So let's do this. Uh, look to the person to your right. Now look to the person to your left. That person in their lifetime or in the last decade, or in the last five years, or maybe probably in the last week, has experienced some kind of trial, struggle, difficulty, or even battle with sin, right? Some of you have even had these kind of struggles with sin or, or, or just trials that, like, they can define seasons of your life. And this little bit that I'm about to say, you can hear me and say, yes, it's true. Yes and Amen. Because you've done the hard work of healing, confessing, forgiving, asking for forgiveness, maybe even reconciling. You've done that difficult work. That's difficult, right? Yes. But then others of you, maybe in this room, you've got some kind of baggage that you're dragging behind you. I know this well. You've got some kind of sin or some kind of uh, weight that is just, it's weighing you down because of fear and because of shame. So I'll say this. When we submit to this process of refining and allowing Jesus to reveal the things that we are disgusted with in ourselves, when we submit to that refining process, Jesus does not put you to shame. Which is ridiculous. (laughs) Jesus does not put us to shame and Jesus does not condemn us. When we come face to face with the things that he's trying to chisel out of us, He does not shame us. So what does he say to the woman caught in adultery? She's caught, right? She doesn't even have the guts. She doesn't have to work up the guts to confess this to her spouse. She's caught. And yet still Jesus says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Mm, Sorry. (laughs) Not sure what that was. Everybody's awake. This is good. Uh, What does he say? He says... uh, Go and sin no more after uh, saving her from uh, a terrible death, truly. 
Uh, think about the, the man, the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5. Jesus frees him from his demons, many, many demons. And we see him in town, seated, clothed, and in his right mind. And then Jesus says to him, go into town, go to your family, go to your friends, and tell them all that God has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. So in both instances, Jesus does healing. He makes them whole. He frees them, but then he sends them. He says, go, go sin no more. Go tell everybody how much God has had mercy on you. Jesus does not put us to shame when we um, sit face to face with him and allow him to do the very difficult and hard work of making us whole. Because here's what fear and shame does. It it, it makes us believe this kind of lie, that it is incomprehensible. It, it's impossible for me to experience the kind of freedom that I desperately need from my demons. That's what fear and shame does. Allows us to believe that lie, that it is impossible for me to be free uh, from this. So I just have to muscle through. I just have to stick with it. That's what fear and shame does. So how good and how scandalous is the grace of Jesus... When he does exactly that and grants us freedom, that's good. That's, that's the goodness of God that we just sang about. That's what, that's what we mean when we say that grace is scandalous, that he does the exact thing that we have bought hook, line, and sinker that we can't have. That's the kind of freedom that Jesus gives. But he doesn't just free us, right? He frees us, and then he says, Go. Go and sin no more. And then he says, go and tell people how he has had mercy on you. Freedom from Jesus. And when Jesus makes us whole, he does not just make us whole and then say, stand in this box and just wait. That's not hope. That's prison. Jesus gives us a kind of hope that is, like we've been saying, it is a very active hope. Even though it is waiting, absolutely. And it is, um, it's tense and we're waiting for a release. We're waiting for Jesus, right? It is also active, which means it's, it's James. His faith without works is dead. We move forward and we, we, we climb, we grab on and we keep progressing and progressing and progressing because this is how Jesus operates. He makes us whole and then he gives us hope and then he gives us new purpose. So in this process of refining, uh, in our process of coming face to face with the things that we need to remove, the things that we need to heal from, and the things that we need in order to be whole in front of Jesus, to sit next to him, in order for this to happen, or when this happens, Jesus is glorified. You see that in the text. At the end of verse 7, that we'd be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not only come for perfect people. That's not true. Jesus came to make <laughs> not bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And this is the result. This is the result that we would be found to have a faith and, and um, a, a spirit like this one that results in praise and glory and honor. Like, Jesus healing us from the things that we need to be healed from, that's what Jesus does best. Give it a chance. Give Jesus a chance. How do you do that? It starts with confession of sin. It starts with uh, community. And it starts with being honest with the Lord. So this is what it results in. Glory, praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Jesus is revealed in our healing. Let me get to verse 8. Peter writes to them, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. 
Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is, what's the word? Inexpressible. Like how much joy is inexpressible joy? Like that's supposed to make your mind do hula hoops and stuff. Um, And filled with glory, verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith. The outcome of your faith, which is the salvation of your souls. There's this process of salvation. There's this process of submitting to the refining process of Jesus removing what is impure so that the pure uh, can can shine. Uh, The process goes like this, that because of Jesus, we have been saved, we are being saved, and one day we will fully be saved. Been saved, being saved, and then one day we will be saved. Which means one day, not yet, but one day, we will be in full, rich glory with Jesus. Totally sanctified, totally made holy in his presence. That is coming. Let's have hope in that, right? Uh, That's what's going to happen. But here in the middle, in the process of being saved, we have to do something. We, We have to do this. It's those words, obtaining the outcome of your faith. In verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So um, I I used to do a lot of this, but I don't do a lot of this now, but I wish I would. Uh, It's rock climbing. Everybody ever been rock climbing? Like two of you, great. Honestly, I think it's a like a Midwest thing where I'm from. Uh, So used to do a whole lot of it, indoor, outdoor, a lot of indoor. And you have two options when it comes to the rope. Right, you have to have a rope, otherwise you're, you know, not it's not safe. So you want to have a rope, and you have two options. One is called an automatic belay, which is a machine attached to the very top of the uh, of the wall, and it's just literally your rope is attached to that machine, and as you climb up, it retracts with you so that there's no slack between you and the top. What happens is, if you've ever done this, when you slip, when you fall, when you miss a hold, when your arms get tired, you, you fall, and then what happens? It, it, it doesn't, like, catch you. It just it slowly lets you down so that you don't break your ankles. It slowly gets you down to the bottom, and then you have a chance to restart. That's an automatic belay. The better option is a person, an actual person who is belaying you. Because they've already climbed it, they've looped a rope through, they've come back down, and then you attach yourself to that person. So you climb, and you climb, and you climb, and then what happens? You slip, arms get tired, miss a hold, and you fall off. But the difference is, what happens? You just kind of dangle there. You don't move at all. Shake your arms out, wipe your sweaty hands, grab back on, pull, pull back on, and keep going until you get to top Ring the bell. Congratulations. This is rock climbing. Um, I had somebody over this passage ask me the question. Okay, it says faith, it says hope. What is the difference between hope and faith? What's the difference? Faith. <laughs> well said. What's the difference between hope and faith? Um, I like to picture myself on the wall, on a, on a climbing wall. Faith operates out of hope. Faith operates out of the hope that I'm going to grab onto this and I'm going to grab on this based on the hope that I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to go crashing down the bottom. And even if I do fall, I'm not going to fall all the way down. I get to stay right there. If we have hope in in our X and Y um, 
uh, equation. If that's what our hope looks like, that my hope, my, my equilibrium, my contentment is based on my circumstances, we're operating under the first rock climbing way, which is this, that, that we, we try and we try and we try and we fail and guess what? Fall all the way to the bottom. You have to start over. Because your hope is based on your circumstances. It's based on your ability. Christian, we're very different. We have a different kind of hope. A, diff, a way better kind of hope. It says, as you go, as you climb, as you take active steps of faith, faith that works, grab one hold, grab one hold. As you keep climbing, you will find that when you do fail, you don't fall. Jesus has not put us to shame. Jesus has not let us fall. Jesus is kind. Jesus actually lets us stay there for a minute, gather ourselves, become whole, and then Obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Keep going, keep going. This is how our Savior operates with us. It's so difficult, I think, uh, to, uh, to shake ourselves free of the lies that we can believe of that are planted in us by fear and that are given to us by shame. They are very convincing, those kind of lies. When you submit and actively uh, sit in this refining process, and Jesus does the miraculous work of removing what is impure, yes, it can be painful. But what is the outcome? The very last words of our passage. It is the salvation of your souls. This is the kind of hope that we can have moving into 2024. This is the kind of hope we can have. It's not based on us. It's not based on our ability. It, it is this, that we can actually tether ourselves to Jesus. We can tether ourselves to him and therefore know that all I have to do, all I have to do in difficulty or in joy is look back and see Jesus. Jesus, who has defeated my sin and given me that victory. That is what he has done for us. That's why we can have hope moving into 2024. Uh, let's... Let's close up and we'll uh, pray, and then we're going to keep worshiping together. Uh, Lord, thank you for the opportunity just to be together, and thank you for Jesus as we've been reflecting, and um, the reality of him who came so humbly in order to... um, uh, to save us and to treat us as you would treat Jesus, uh, Lord. That, uh, what a gift. And I pray, um, I pray right now, on the last day of 2023, that maybe one year from now, one year uh, from today, all of us in this room will be able to look back and say, um, I'm, I'm, I know you better. I know your word better. I know you better. And Lord, because of this, I love you more. That, let that be our goal. Let that be our mission as a church. But Lord, for the next day, for the next weeks, months, and into this next year, you know what awaits us. Lord, we don't. Your, your, your word is a lamp. It's not a floodlight. So I pray that you would give us this kind of hope that lets us have an active faith that takes one step at a time, one step at a time, all the while knowing we have this kind of hope. One that is unfading, undefiled, cannot be shaken, cannot be taken away, guarded in heaven. Well, that's the kind of hope you give us. So as we worship you uh, with, with that truth in mind, and as, even as we go, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Mm-hmm.